New Zealand's in the middle of a drive to get a rotating spot on the United Nations Security Council. The administration's been working towards the goal since Labour was last in power, but this Radio New Zealand Insight asks why does the government think it's worth the effort? New Zealand's campaign to win a non-permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council is gathering momentum, but it faces strong competition from Spain and Turkey. Only two of the three countries will be elected to the Security Council for the 2015-16 term, and both of the other nations have deeper pockets than New Zealand. But the Prime Minister John Key is confident the government's campaign is going as well as it can. He says winning a non-permanent seat on the Security Council would give New Zealand greater global influence and open up new markets, particularly in Africa. I'm Brent Edwards, and this insight considers whether a small country like New Zealand can have any influence on the Security Council. Just over a month ago, the Security Council, long criticised for its inaction over the conflict in Syria, finally passed a resolution on the use of chemical weapons on the outskirts of Damascus. At the same time, Mr Key was in New York for the UN General Assembly and furiously lobbying other world leaders for a place on the council. In any conversation about the bid, talk invariably turns to the last time New Zealand was on the council in 1993-94. At the time, New Zealand spoke out strongly against the genocide in Rwanda. The Labour Party's foreign affairs spokesperson, David Shearer, was a young aid worker at the time. I was in Rwanda, um, on the ground there. I, was, uh, it was, I, I arrived there about a week after the genocide. The Security Council at that point was, uh, was deliberating around it. Um, and New Zealand was taking a strong stance and, and, and a very principled stance based on, uh, based on human rights. And uh, a number of people commented to me, uh, New Zealand is, is leading the way here, and I felt incredibly proud that we, we had done that, and it, it, and it carries on today. I mean, our, our argument to be on the Security Council, we're evoking the time that we were on last, and people still remember that. John Key also refers to New Zealand's last term on the council as justification for campaigning for another term. New Zealand's been on the Security Council before, most recently in 1993-94, and what we demonstrated then was that we did a very good job. We stood up for the people of Rwanda. Uh, we made a real difference to the world, and I think it's just part of who we are as a small country, but with independent foreign policy and a real perspective on how the world should um, operate. And uh, you know, it's our turn, I think, to um, play our leadership role. So what's our case based on? Well, the case is based on a few things. One, history. Uh, we've done a good job on there before. Secondly, two, yes, we might be small, but we've um, got a, you know, a, a good perspective. We're a moderate country. Uh, we form our own views, um, and we've got history of, of demonstrating to the world that actually um, when we say something, even if we are small, we should be listened to. An analysis by New Zealand's embassy to the UN judged its term on the Security Council in the 1990s to be a success. And in 1993-94, New Zealand's initiatives on Rwanda, Cameroon, Somalia, Burundi and Mozambique all won at QDOS in world capitals. The report says this country's independent foreign policy was widely respected. Again, in this campaign, the government is using New Zealand's independent foreign policy to win support for its bid. David Shearer supports the campaign, but he's not so sure the national-led government's foreign policy is as independent as it was under Labour. It's not as uh, perceived as as independent as it has been. Um, 
just because of the stance of this government, uh, this government takes slightly different from the, from a Labour government. But overall, uh, we make decisions, or I like to think we make decisions, on the basis of what's right for New Zealand, um, and not necessarily be pushed into making decisions by by larger powers. Just as the question arose in 1993-94, when the United States was obstructive over Rwanda, similar problems exist today as the council has delayed taking action on Syria. Can any elected member of the council, let alone a small country like New Zealand, make a difference when the five permanent members, the US, Russia, China, Britain and France, can use their veto to prevent the council acting? The Green Party's foreign affairs spokesperson Kennedy Graham says New Zealand can still play an important role. There's always a potentially huge role for a small country to play because while the major powers, uh, pro, you know, the, the, the theory is that they provide the, uh, the military capacity to, uh, for peace and security, but in fact when it comes to the crunch it's usually the smaller powers, the smaller states, that actually provide the boots on the ground while the major powers um, presume to make the policy in the, in the Security Council. So there's a bit of an irony there. But when it comes to just general involvement in the UN, there's a huge role that a small country can play on the Security Council because when you are sitting around the table and uh, there are 15 members sitting around the table, it's the quality and insight of what you actually say in terms of your policy that can influence a debate. Yes, five have a veto, but let's not overstate the veto. Probably 90% of decisions are made either by consensus or by a majority vote and are not vetoed. Thomas Weiss teaches international relations at the City University of New York and is a leading expert on the politics of the United Nations. Professor Weiss is another who believes that despite the dominance of the big powers, small and medium-sized countries can still have influence on the Security Council. When uh, decisions are tight, the major powers actually look for votes. So, for example, uh, in the decision in March of 2011 to take action against uh, Libya, uh, according to the rules of the Council, you can't have any power against you. So Russia and China stood aside and abstained. But a number of elected members actually went along with the United States, France, and Britain to give it a 10-5 vote, which gets through. So on occasion, the votes in the Security Council of smaller and, and medium powers are important. Part of John Key's bid at the United Nations was a push for reform of the Council, including scrapping the veto. He made the case during a speech to the General Assembly. We now seem to have a practice whereby the permanent members can not only block Council actions through the veto, they also appear to have privileged access to information and can stop the Council from meeting if it does not suit their collective purposes. Such behaviours damage the reputation and credibility of the wider organisation and must be challenged. These are not necessarily matters of charter reform, which we know is difficult, but of the effective functioning of the organisation an issue in which we all have a stake. New Zealand is not advocating revolution, but we are asserting the Council can and must do better in the way it conducts its business. That is the approach New Zealand will bring to the Security Council if we are elected next October.
Des appels pour que des obstacles à leurs actions soient levés. Mr Key was not alone in calling on the permanent members of the Security Council to relax their veto powers. After a speech, he made New Zealand's view on the veto very clear. We don't agree with the veto, and especially when it's, um, it could apply to issues of genocide and you know, huge loss of life. Kennedy Graham and David Shearer also support moves to reform the use of the veto. Thomas Weiss at the City University of New York agrees the powers to control votes is a problem for the UN, but he says there are reasons for having it. It certainly is the main impediment to expeditious uh, and authoritative uh, decision-making because the five have to, if not approve something, at least not get in the way. The veto is, of course, necessary to get particularly the United States and the, the then Soviet Union to sign on because they wanted to have more of a say. Uh, neither really participated in the League of Nations for a whole series of reasons. So the veto was absolutely essential to get them in. And the veto was also absolutely essential to not make matters worse. That's the kind of bottom line in politics. So that we certainly weren't going to take military action against one of the major powers. So the idea that they have a veto makes some sort of sense. Thomas Weiss says in the end the use of the veto isn't governed by principle, but more by what is in each permanent member's national interest. So if we're talking about Palestine, you can be guaranteed the U.S. is going to issue its veto. In the old days when we were talking about South Africa, the Brits... Uh, and uh, currently, uh, if we're looking at resolving a conflict in many countries in which national sovereignty is critical, you can almost count on the Russians and the Chinese to say yet or whatever the equivalent is in Chinese. So each just acts in what they see as their own self-interest? Absolutely. Absolutely. The United Nations High Representative for Disarmament Affairs, Angela Kane, has seen the use of the veto up close over many years. She isn't optimistic there will be any change. We have talked about a reform of the Security Council for going on 20 years, and uh, I think that uh, the difficulty is twofold. One of them is that 15 members is, are not seen necessarily to be representative of 193 member states. It's less than 10%, so it's a very small number. And you have five uh, permanent members who have the veto. And the only change you can bring about of the vetoes, there was at one point a discussion about making it a veto, but you cannot exercise it. Well, then I'm not quite sure what it serves. But on the other hand, um, the uh, permanent five have to agree to abolishing their own veto. That's in the charter. And I don't see any any possibility of them agreeing to that. But if the Security Council is stymied, you can have 14 members in favor of something and you can have one member who has a veto against it and then that simply is not going to fly. And that's why you need to work through this and say, is there any other way that we can negotiate? There, there's, there's always ways to keep up the dialogue, to keep on talking. And in this case, yes, it's gone on far too long, but I think that the positions are coming together, that there is a much better convergence. Thomas Weiss is another who is pessimistic about the prospects of change at the Security Council. Almost everyone except the Permanent Five would like to see a change in the Security Council. Uh, that too happens to be politically virtually impossible in my view. I've written that on several occasions that not in my lifetime, I'm not going to live forever, but I, I don't see any Security Council change. And I think the last thing to go will be the veto because you have to have the veto-wielding members agree to give up the veto, which they're fairly unlikely to do. 
given the inertia of the Security Council and criticism that the UN is too slow to react to crises, is there any point in New Zealand seeking a place on the Council? The administrator of the UN Development Programme and former Prime Minister Helen Clark concedes the UN's not perfect. I think I've always been pretty realistic about the UN. If you didn't have it, you'd have to invent it. It doesn't work perfectly, but then why would it? It's uh, endeavouring through a General Assembly and a Security Council to accommodate a range of views much wider than those to be found in the New Zealand Parliament. So diplomacy has to work really hard to bring people together and find a common cause. I mean, because there's always crises where the UN is criticised, and I guess for the moment the, the crisis that might be most prominent in the public mind would be Syria, and where the UN is seen to not be able to be effective in terms of stopping um, atrocities. Is, is that a fair comment, or does it just go back to the comment you've made about the difficulty of getting a whole lot of countries to agree on action? Most of the news that emanates from the UN is about the political security crises, and there are very, very tough and intractable crises. But if you look at the latest developments in the Syria crisis, the fact that the UN was able to get chemical weapons inspectors in, get the samples, pronounce that these weapons had indeed been used, that provided the basis for some quite dynamic diplomatic developments, which are seeing Syria accede to the Chemical Weapons Convention, agree to dispose of its chemical weapons, and that may lay the basis for some kind of negotiated solution through the Syria crisis. Angela Kane led negotiations with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's government and opposition groups to allow UN experts to investigate the chemical attack on the outskirts of Damascus. She says there is reason to be optimistic about what the organisation can achieve. If you see about the achievements that have been made, for example, now you have this revulsion at the use of chemical weapons. I mean, chemical weapons, there are only six countries that are not members of the Chemical Weapons Convention, so it's nearly universal. And I think there will be a much stronger push now for the remaining countries that remain outside the chemical weapons to actually join it. That's a very positive uh, outcome from something that is actually very bad, i.e. the chemical weapons use in Syria. But when you look at other issues, for example, international humanitarian law or the issue of uh, uh, nuclear war and the consequences, this was, again, humanitarian consequences of a nuclear war. That was an issue that was discussed in Oslo at great length and that will be now followed on. So you actually have a consensus that is starting to emerge. It's, we're not there yet. But on the other hand, I think that there is a way to go for the international community to achieve such consensus. i give you another example, the responsibility to protect I remember that this issue came up about 14, 15 years ago. That's not a long time, if you think about it. And it was revolutionary at the time and not even welcomed by many Western states simply because they said, well, we are a sovereign state. Who is telling us that we have to protect our own citizens? And if you don't do it, then there could be an involvement of the international community. Now you are 14, 15 years later, and it is maybe not fully implemented, but it is a fully accepted tenet of the international community, I think that that is amazing. Hours after John Key flew out of New York in late September, the Security Council finally met to agree on its response to Syria's use of chemical weapons. The power imbalance within the Council was symbolised by the late start of the meeting. It was meant to get underway at 8pm, 
but delegates, ambassadors and foreign ministers milled around chatting while they waited for the United States Secretary of State, John Kerry, to arrive. The moment he strode in with his entourage, 15 minutes late, the meeting began. The result of the voting is as follows. While the member countries voted on the resolution on Syria, the deal had been negotiated by the five permanent members, particularly by Russia and the United States. John Kerry made it clear who was responsible for the resolution. This important resolution reflects what President Obama said to do, and colleagues around the world set out to do. I want to thank Foreign Minister Obama for his personal efforts Ministers and ambassadors from the 10 elected members of the Security Council also made statements on the resolution and all criticised the way the permanent members had hijacked the process. During his General Assembly speech, John Key pointed the finger at Russia and China for delaying action. But most countries also opposed the earlier US plan to take military action against the Syrian regime. Kennedy Graham says there's good reason for Russia and China to be cautious. Let's recognise that China and, and Russia are vetoing in the past 12 months on Syria because of what they argue is an over-interpretation by the Western powers of the UN Security Council resolution under responsibility to protect that allowed, uh, as the Western powers saw it, military action in Libya, which Syria, uh, Russia and China always said was never anticipated. And there's been the Kosovo, there have been other cases. No-fly zone over Iraq was never explicitly authorised. So there has been a consistent... Um, syndrome of Western powers on the Council over-interpreting resolutions to in, allow them military action. And that is why Sir, uh, Russia and China uh, have, in the last 12 months, been a little bit more stringent over Syria. The New Zealand First Leader and a former Foreign Minister, Winston Peters, believes the government's comments on Syria have not been helpful. There's got to be a reason why we're offside with Russia. But Syria is a humanitarian disaster. It is all of that, but then if you understand the tribalism of Syria, it is not that simple. That's my point. So if you're going to talk about Syria, uh, I mean, there is as much concern around the neighbourhood of Syria as to what might come as there is there right now. Now, that may not be overtly the comment that they make publicly, but it's certainly covertly and behind the scenes what they say. And I think we've got to watch ourselves when we engage in that part of the world. Mr Peters also hints that New Zealand fell out with other countries earlier, forcing it to delay its bid for the Security Council seat. It was thought that it was our time this uh, next year, 2014. Um, there are some who would point out that other nations who we thought were on our side actually pushed us aside. Who were they? I don't want to say this, but that was a perception that I recalled when I was Foreign Minister. Were they close allies, close friends who pushed us aside? Well, without going public, um, I could give them a description as being people we thought, or countries we thought were close allies, yes. And that's why it got pushed back a year? Uh, that's my belief, yes. In New York, tight security on the streets surrounding the UN frustrated New Yorkers and visitors alike 
as leaders gathered for the General Assembly debate. John Key left the city cautiously confident New Zealand is doing all it can to win a seat on the Security Council. I'm feeling confident about our campaign, but in the end it's never over until the votes are actually cast and it's a highly competitive environment. And in that highly competitive contest, money talks. Countries bidding for spots on the council have often been accused of buying votes by promising large amounts of aid to woo support from developing countries. John Key says New Zealand can't outbid its opponents, Turkey and Spain they will spend considerably more. So they may well you know, really ramp up their aid in certain countries that they want to get over the line to vote for them. You know, we, we are running a very old-fashioned campaign. Yes, we're in the process of slightly broadening out our representation. You know, there are things that we can genuinely do. Um, a lot of those are, for instance, agricultural diplomacy. We've got uh, you know, a meeting today with Lesotho. Um, they, for instance, I think have real interest in their wool industry and it's one of the ways they make money. New Zealand can probably provide some people, for instance, in, in that country uh, to help develop their industry. But we'd probably do that anyway. So we're not dramatically spending huge amounts of money in comparison to some of the campaigns that we've seen run. Do you yes, think yes, how much? Oh, well, it'll be, it'll be millions and millions over time. But, you know, I think you go back to the central point of, you know, why do we do all this? And it gives New Zealand engagement and relevancy with a lot of countries around the world. If you're on the Security Council, you're in the chair, both as literally chairing the, the, the um, Security Council for a month, but also you're very engaged with um, those world issues. And um, it just, I think it helps the development of your country. Labor's David Shearer agrees New Zealand can't buy votes at the UN. We have a very small budget. Uh, you can imagine uh, Spain with its influence through the Spanish series of South America, or Turkey with its influences through the Muslim world. Um, they've both got much deeper pockets than, than New Zealand has as well. What we're using is uh, our influence through specific people, um, uh, Sarah Dennis, um, uh, Colin Keating, uh, those sorts, Don McKinnon, they're connecting with people that they know in, around the world and uh, persuading them that New Zealand will stand up for them and we won't be bought and sold and be pushed around. We will stand up for what we believe is, is right. And if we can do that uh, and we can exercise that sort of role in the Security Council, I think we'll have lived up to what we've promised. The government refuses to say how much it's spending on the Security Council bid. Much of its lobbying occurs at international meetings which ministers and diplomats would attend anyway, and the money is coming out of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs budget. Mr Key concedes the total cost will run into millions of dollars, but he says aside from New Zealand gaining greater global influence, if it gets on the council, there will also be commercial benefits. One of the things we've been trying to do around the Security Council campaign is obviously win the votes and get on the council, but actually use this opportunity just to sort of broaden out the economic footprint and uh, opportunities that it presents for New Zealand. So uh, I think Africa is you know, a huge opportunity for New Zealand, not necessarily today or tomorrow, but it's, you know, if you take Ethiopia just as an example, 90 million people growing at 10% a year. And you know, one of the things they really wanted to talk to us about was, uh, for instance, the you know, agricultural production. So, for instance, the, the Prime Minister said to me, well, the Chinese approached them to want to buy beef. Um, they've got no capability to actually deliver that beef, even though they have you know, arable land. 
you know, New Zealand has the technology, it has the capability, and it's all part of that overall program we've got of potentially working with other countries to supply products to different geographies. And I think that's you know the real opportunity for us actually. But the Greens' Kennedy Graham isn't impressed. Of course we have to make our way in this world, economically and financially, but not in the sense that you perceive every step of the way, including on the Security Council, through a financial lens. Do, do you think that then distorts the way you approach it, and, and including possibly the way you might operate once you're on the council? I think it probably distorts your perception of the reality out there and the judgment of what you should be doing, and it also demeans us in the eyes of others. David Shearer says commercial considerations shouldn't be what drives New Zealand's Security Council bid. Mr Shearer says it's what this country can bring to the international debate on security, peace, human rights and democracy which matters. The UN's High Representative on Disarmament Affairs, Angela Kane, says New Zealand could make a big contribution on the Council. I think that um, the value is immense. I think that you are now, there you are, when you are a member of the Security Council, you are sitting at the table where all the major decisions are being made, where all the major decisions are being brought to. And I think you also must remember, contrary to the last time when New Zealand was on the Council, which is now what, close to 20 years ago, um, you, you have a lot more issues that the Council covers. It used to be the Council didn't touch human rights, it didn't touch humanitarian, it didn't touch this, it didn't touch that, because it was only peace and security. But I think peace and security, the definition of it, is now a lot more complex and it's a lot more interlinked with other issues. And that, I think, is extremely important because now the Council is hearing officials that are dealing with human rights, that are dealing with sexual violence, that are dealing with children armed conflict, that are dealing with gender issues. So you have a very broad remit of the Security Council. And to be sitting at the table where these things are decided, I think is extremely important and I think for, for the world community, for the international community, it is important to have a small country like New Zealand at the table. You don't only want the biggies there. Outside the barriers at the UN, protesters voice a multitude of concerns about what's happening inside the organisation. They are though largely ignored. If New Zealand gets on to the Security Council in 2015-16, its voice will be heard. While Mr Key engaged in diplomatic lobbying during his week in New York, the vote won't be taken until next October, so there's still plenty of campaigning to come. And while he's confident about the bid, the New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters is not. If you were to ask me of our chance of making it, I think it's going to be difficult, and perhaps very, very difficult, uh, given some of the decisions that we have taken on, for example, the environment and on uh, conflicts uh, such as, for example, in comments regarding the Middle East that we may have been unwise to make and also con uh, comments about North Korea uh, and Mr Key's comments about lining up against them. Uh, these are not seen to be wise comments internationally. John Key has a lot more lobbying to do including at the coming weekend's Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Sri Lanka, and he will be hoping Mr Peters is wrong. I'm Brent Edwards, and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley, with technical production by Jeremy Veal.